Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Good morning. Today is the day. It's another day the Lord has made. Isn't that great? Just pause and just pause and consider that for just a moment. Today is yet another day the Lord has made. This is the Lord's day. I don't know. I'm always reminded at the beginning of a new year, which I recognize this is not. Today's not the beginning of a new year, but uh, today is a new day and God's mercies are new today. I'm always reminded at the beginning of a new year that no matter what year it is on the calendar, it's the year of the Lord. Like, right? Like, so just pause for a moment this morning and recognize that today is a day that the Lord has given us by his grace and his mercy and his just extravagant love. Today is the Lord's day. Today is the day of salvation for someone. Today is the day that for actually statistically for a lot of people, but maybe somebody that you and I are going to encounter, today will be the day that they will awaken to the reality of who God is, and His grace and love will overwhelm them, and they will become today a brother and sister in Christ for all eternity, uh, a person with whom you and I will will spend the rest of forever uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ. I, that's just an extraordinary, extraordinary reality. And so as we approach today, and I'll just share with you here at the top uh, of the first hour, I'll share it again at the bottom of the second hour. Um, uh, we're going to face as a family today something that uh, we hadn't anticipated facing this week, certainly not today. Uh, Matthew is going to go back into surgery. You can choose to call it unscheduled. You can choose to call it emergency. Unscheduled is a little less terrifying. He's going to uh, go back in, and they are going to remove all of the artificial bone that they put in his cranium in August to protect his brain. Uh, and so that skull that you and I count on every day to protect our brain from, you know, the influence of <clears throat> your actual brain, the little squishy matter. Yeah, uh, you're relying on your skull. I'm relying on my skull. Matthew's skull has lots of holes in it, and his body has rejected the artificial uh, bone that they implanted in there in August. So we're going back in today to have that removed. So prayers for his little body and prayers for uh, the surgeon. His name is Dr. Kelly. Prayers for the team at Vanderbilt Children's Hospital. And prayers uh, for all of us who will be sitting in that surgical waiting room at the Children's Hospital with a lot of anxiety. Because you may know me well enough by now to know I don't like to be in situations where I have no control. None. And so this is one of those situations. And so I, I'll be there to serve my stepson and my husband and our family. And um, so just be praying for us as we do that today, something that we had not anticipated in this week's schedule, but it's, it's part of the rhythm of our life dealing with a child uh, who has some special needs. So thanks in advance for those prayers. All right. Uh, my first guest up this morning is Daniel Bennett. He is a professor at John Brown University. He and I are going to touch on a lot of the political headlines of the day. We may get to talk about uh, his reaction to a YouGov survey finding that a growing percentage, actually 50% of adults under the age of 38, um, think socialism is not a bad idea. Hmm. Okay, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back.
Daniel Bennett is back from John Brown University and the Center for Faith and Flourishing. Uh, welcome back, Daniel. Thanks so much. Are we going to have the privilege of hearing the rooster this morning or not? You know, I'm inside. It's a little chilly. Okay. Uh, given his volume, though, you still might hear him. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so is this your first winter uh, with hens? Yes. Okay, so can I just give you one tidbit of counsel? Please. If you want to get eggs, you have to supply that. You have to supplement their light. So those hens need 14 hours of light every day in order to lay an egg. So okay. if you want to get an egg every day, you have to supplement their light. Otherwise, you're going to get an egg like every two or three days. All right. So put some light out there. Yep. Stick a light in their coop. Okay. Uh, it might. Uh, it might. That's good to know. Uh, you might have a less seasonally depressed rooster as well. So there you go. That's okay. good. That's good. Uh, you know, I feel like the the show should serve you uh, in some way. So maybe that will be the way that happens today. Okay. Talk with us. Talk with us about impeachment. We uh, we are hearing that Speaker Pelosi is announcing a vote probably Thursday. Uh, the full House will vote on a resolution formalizing impeachment inquiry. This is just an interesting development, I think, in the impeachment inquiry process. We are certainly continuing in the process of these uh, closed-door, behind-the-scenes um, interviews. And so just give us an update and a sense of where we are in this process. So on the one hand, uh, I think it is important, just given the fact that so many Republicans have been saying, we need a formal vote, we need a formal vote, why is there not a formal vote? Um, on the other hand, this is pretty expected in terms of procedure. What the resolution should do, and I haven't seen the text yet, so it'll be interesting to read it. It should lay out who has jurisdiction in terms of committees, what are, what are going to be the uh, responsibilities of Democrats and Republicans on those committees, what types of power the parties are going to have. Um, so nothing will really change in terms of the actual process, but it should lay out the ground rules. And that should be interesting in terms of response from Republicans who are objecting to this. Oh, well, and especially when they feel like they're not getting all of the information or they're not being included. So uh, sure. we'll see how sure. we'll see yep. if, if it makes it more transparent and participatory. You and I don't right. know. So we're going to move on to another topic unless you want to talk more about uh, what's going on with the impeachment. Well, inquiry. just. Yeah, just really. So one other thing here. So uh, with, with these hearings so far, they, they have been closed door as testimony has been, uh, you know, being gathered by the relevant committees. Members of both parties are on these committees. Of course, that doesn't mean that all Republicans are going to be happy with this process. Um, but uh, right now, there there is a sense of uh, lack of transparency. You can make an argument that this is arguably a good thing. So we don't have you know, people who are testifying, having a chance to coordinate testimony with each other. Uh, but on the other hand, it is frustrating when you have people already uh, under the impression that President Trump is being targeted by Democrats, and we just don't know enough information right now. I'm I'm willing to wait for the for the public part of this, and if it's still not transparent, I think that's when we can start to seriously question the process. All right. So, uh, again, continuing my conversation with yeah. Daniel Bennett from John Brown University, the Center for Faith and Flourishing. So I am reading that uh, young Americans and here we're going to talk mm -hmm. about ad adults. Um, and actually, this goes down. This survey goes reaches down to those who are 16 um, and mm. up. So when we talk about um, this, this survey, it's a YouGov survey. Uh, and it was it was co-sponsored by the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. So there is a there's a desire here to have an educated public in terms of the harms of communism. That's that is really what the survey is after. But what they discovered is that 50 percent of millennials, so adults 23 to 38 and 51 percent of the next generation for this survey, that would be 16 to 22 year olds. 
have a somewhat or very unfavorable view of capitalism. Now, that doesn't mean that more than 50 percent have a favorable view of socialism so that because the numbers don't rise as quickly as they fall, apparently. But for for more than 50 percent of adults age 38 and under to have at least a somewhat unfavorable or very unfavorable view of capitalism, I think means we are not doing a good job um, in terms of having a redeemed form of capitalism that actually works for people. I think it's exactly right. I think so. There's two things happening here, I would guess. Number one, I think it's hard uh, to know exactly what these uh, folks are understanding when they hear a term like capitalism. Uh, usually, if you break down a, a broad term into more specific parts, you'll find uh, more support for those specific things other than just a broad term like capitalism or socialism. Um, but I think you you hit the nail on the head uh, with with what you said about a redeemed form of capitalism. Got to remember, I mean, these are the millennials who uh, came of age. We're entering the job market during the Great Recession. They were effectively uh, they they lost several years of income earning uh, as a result of the of the Great Recession. And so I'm sure there's some pent up fr- frustration there, even though the economy has recovered. Uh, so I think there's a few things going on here. I think the fact that you're not seeing a high favorable view of socialism and communism, I think that's good. (laughs) Uh, But the fact that there's critiques of capitalism, I think, is more of a remnant of the Great Recession. We do need to educate about the value of free markets as well. Uh, But I think we're just seeing a remnant right now. So here was the most disturbing takeaway for me. Uh, 19% of millennials and and 12% of Gen Z. So again, those are not overwhelming numbers, but they're significant thought that the Communist Manifesto, quote, better guarantees freedom and equality for all than the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> yeah. And, we and have, we just, have some I mean, work to do. We have, we have to do better. <laughs> yeah. We have to do better because that's clearly just not true. All right. Hey, um, Daniel right. Bennett, let's take, a, let's take a quick break. When we come back, you went to a presidential politics conference at Dort College. Um, we're just going to love to hear what you, what you heard there and what you gathered in. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Daniel Bennett from John Brown University. All right, continuing my conversation with Daniel Bennett from John Brown University and the Center for Faith and Flourishing. You attended a presidential politics conference at Dort College in Iowa. Uh, Tell us about that. Yeah, it was really great. They hold it every four years to coincide uh, with the run-up to the Iowa caucuses, and it's a combination of uh, keynote speakers, uh, journalists, academics, uh, and then you, a couple of presidential candidates usually show up, and there's some presentations from professors and students on, on the presidency, very broadly understood. All right, and you gave one of those presentations, which is cool, and so I feel yeah. like we ought to benefit from that. Tell us about making judges great again. Uh, you you outlined <laughs> the characteristics of Donald Trump's judicial appointments. First of all, remind people what a judicial appointment is and which kind right. of judges the president appoints, because you know we're not all quite as paying attention to this as you are. <laughs> sure. So uh, the Constitution gives the president the authority to put federal judges on the courts to lifetime appointments. There is the uh, Senate's role in this. The Senate has to approve the president's nominees. Uh, But by and large, anything but the Supreme Court has traditionally been pretty, pretty, you know, pretty milquetoast, not a lot of controversy around it. Um, So the president does have a pretty big role in shaping the judiciary for any number of years, given the fact that these are lifetime appointments. 
documents. And so one thing we were curious about is, okay, Donald Trump's a pretty unconventional president. I think that's pretty safe to say. Uh, what about his judicial nominees? Are they similarly unconventional, or do they or do they uh, are they similar to those from past presidents? And we find it's basically similar to past presidents. He's nominated a lot more judges or judges than uh, previous presidents at this point in their presidencies, but the judges themselves are pretty typical in terms of experience qualifications, uh, et cetera. The one difference is he's nominating younger judges on average, not much younger, about a year or two younger on average. Um, the other big difference is he's nominating far more judges to the court of appeals, the different courts of appeals around the country. And this is important because for most of American case law, most American legal issues at the federal courts, they don't go to the Supreme Court. They stop at the appeals courts. 99% of cases typically stop there. Um, so these are judges who are going to be having a pretty lasting influence on the courts for 20, 30, maybe even 40 years. All right. Again, continuing my conversation with Daniel Bennett from John Brown University and the Center for Faith and Flourishing. Remind us what the Center for Faith and Flourishing is. Yeah, we're dedicated to the proposition that uh, economic and religious liberty are good for people and they're flourishing as individuals and in society. Uh, so uh, here at JBU, what that means is we bring in speakers, we bring in uh, programming for students, uh, we raise debates on campus, uh, really to really around these ideas of, of liberty and, and broadly understood. Uh, so we're in our first year. Uh, you can learn more about us, faithandflourishing.org. Um, we have a pretty decent speaker lineup for the spring. Uh, so we're looking forward to it. That's very cool. You know now, of course, I aspire to be a speaker now that you've said that. All right. There you go. Um, All right. So, you know, just just throw the the bread out on the water. All right. Partisanship and religious liberty. Um, When we talk about partisanship, we talk about the political environment, um, we tend to historically think that we are bringing a religious identity into that conversation. We're bringing our faith to bear yeah. on the politics of the day. We are actually seeing a statistical reversal of that and that partisan mm. politics is actually now affecting our religious identity. Talk, talk with us about this research. Right. So this is some really important research from Michelle Margolis. She's a political scientist who teaches at Penn. And she has a book out uh, late last year, uh, From Politics to the Pews. And it's basically a study of how people's uh, political identity is shaping their religious behavior. And it's pretty fascinating for what you just said. We tend to think that religious identity kind of trumps everything and it influences other aspects of our lives. But what she's finding in surveys and other types of experiments with people at various stages of life is that the political identity that we cultivate, especially in adolescence and in our upbringings, that actually has some pretty profound effects later in life on our religious identities. This is consistent with the role of partisanship kind of consuming every aspect of who we are lately. Um, But it's also consistent with this idea of sorting, this idea that we are intentionally identifying with different communities based on our political beliefs. Um, And as you can imagine, this has some pretty interesting and and unfortunate implications for churches. Well, let's talk about those. 
Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, congregations are going to be less diverse politically, mm. for sure. It's not going to reflect the diversity that's that's in the kingdom of God. Of course, political identity is often tied up with race and ethnicity and other identifying characteristics. But fundamentally, this gets to the problem of when we root our identity in something other than our citizenship in heaven and, and our identity in Christ. When we put our identity solely in politics, it's not that it just affects our work in society and our lives generally. It actually affects the people that we worship with, um, mm. which can obviously have some pretty, uh, I think, troubling implications for the church broadly. So uh, even, even in this age of partisanship, even religion— and even our faith is not free from partisanship. That's a pretty troubling finding, but it was very important in reshaping the conversation about these issues. So as we're talking, um, you know, as we're talking today with with other folks, I'm, I'm wondering mm-hmm. how just in a regular conversation, if I have, you know, I've got a Christian friend um, who is really always, always leading with partisan political talk, always. Um mm-hmm. I just need a I need a starting point that doesn't sound like I'm attacking her that, um, yeah. you know, where I can say, you know, I'm I am concerned that you're you're this all of this political focus is actually first of all, it's robbing you of the joy of your salvation. And it seems to be coloring your opinion of other image bearers. But that seems kind of strong. Yeah. But can I say that? Yeah, I mean, I I don't think uh, I think Jesus uh, in, in you know in the in the Gospels didn't really mince words about these types of issues, especially when it was affecting people's souls. Um, and I think there is a greater responsibility for people in the church to, uh, and the, like you said, the language is kind of strong, but to be called out for uh, for, for for problematic uh, perspectives. So I mean, I don't think we would hesitate if our pastor preached on Sunday some type of heresy. We wouldn't go to the church or the pastor and say, hey, I think that was misguided. Uh, why, why, why aren't we more comfortable bringing up in a loving way, hey, I, you know, let's talk about, let's talk about these priorities? Because I, I, I feel like it, it's, uh, I feel like you're missing some opportunities with those fellow image bearers uh, with whom you might disagree. Yeah, that's, I think that's really, really helpful. Daniel, thank you so much. It's tough, uh, good, but yeah, yeah. Good luck sure. with your egg harvest this winter. So I have a sneaking suspicion. I'm telling suspicion. you, that was a great takeaway. Yeah, well, there you go. And apparently um, Paul Perot told you off air that you need a full spectrum or broad spectrum light, not just any light. Yes. So there you go. Yeah, we'll oh, I love take that. that in mind. We're going to be people of light. We might have to do a whole segment on what kind of light people are using <laughs> in their chicken coops over the winter. All right. Hey, Daniel, thank you so much. We look forward to the next time. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. That's Daniel Bennett from John Brown University, the Center for Faith and Flourishing. We'll be right back. Okay, so you've probably heard that Representative Katie Hill has resigned her seat in Congress uh, for having been exposed for inappropriate relationships with subordinates on her staff. Uh, if you haven't heard about that, you are going to today. I think that the you know it's important to note that she supported the very bill that made sexual relationships with subordinates a violation of House ethics. And part of what this illuminates is at least the double standard um, of those who are in positions of political influence and whether or not they think the rules apply to themselves. So up next, uh, we've got a journalist. Her name is Sarah Chase from The Atlantic. 
she posted a piece, oh, it was probably almost a month ago now, um, Hunter Biden's perfectly legal, socially acceptable corruption. And um, I want to talk with her about how we got to this place where corruption is actually just the standard practice. And maybe if she's got any thoughts about uh, a way forward. She's a journalist, so probably just going to have a conversation with her about her reporting. And then after we talk with her, we'll speculate about how we might improve things as Christians in the culture. That conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, maybe you need some uh, some encouragement. I know I need encouragement from time to time. Some of the encouragement that I you know, just celebrate most often is the encouragement that I receive from brothers and sisters in Christ uh, in the fellowship of believers who gather you know, at, at the local church where I worship. And so thankful this morning for the members of our community group who uh, we know are praying for us as a family. Francis Chan has a book entitled Letters to the Church. And the church has changed a lot since uh, since the book of Acts or the way it's depicted in the book of Acts. But Francis Chan helps us explore the true purposes of church, calls believers to once again become Christ's bride in the book Letters to the Church. And we're giving away three copies this week so you can enter to win a copy of Francis Chan's Letters to the Church by going to MyFaithRadio.com. We'll be right back. Growing up, I loved going to the county fair. Even before we got there, I could just smell the corn dogs and the cotton candy, and I couldn't wait to ride the carnival rides. Hi, this is Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. There's just one big problem with events like the fair. Once you get there, you have so many choices. It can really make your head spin. You know, a lot of money decisions can be like that too. It seems like there's infinite options from the grocery store to online shopping. So how do you decide? First, take a step back. Ask God to help you understand you're enough. Be consciously grateful for what you have. Then create a monthly budget. Set aside funds for basic needs, prudent reserve, preparing for the unexpected, and giving. Hey, and don't forget to have a bucket for fun. Letting your faith guide your spending decisions might be tough at first. But in the end, it will lead to a life of contentment, confidence, and generosity. Hi, I'm Ted Ross with the Faith in Life Minute. Rourke Denver is a former Navy SEAL who offers this advice on helping military men and women transition to civilian life. You find just a tremendous source of belonging and motivation and pride being part of the military. And a lot of guys and gals, when they get out, find that lacking and, and really struggle and wrestle with what they're going to go do. And there's also this idea of hero and heroism. I think people believe everyone in the military is a hero. I, I'm not going to begrudge anybody for saying that. I think almost everyone, I'm sure you've interviewed people besides me that just don't feel that way. I mean, they just feel like they were doing a job, giving their best. They were put in pretty exceptional situation and came out of it. One thing we can do as a civilian populace is actually just give heroes some space, give them some grace to know that that might have been one exceptional moment. Their everyday life, they're dealing with all the same stuff of you and me. Find more information on Rourke Denver and his book, Worth Dying For, at MyFaithRadio.com. Joined now by Sarah Chase. She is a journalist. She writes for The Atlantic. You can find what she writes at theatlantic.com. Sarah, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. 
Thank you so much for having me. And let me just correct, I'm not actually an Atlantic writer. I just, this was an opinion piece. So just I to say, that. I don't, you know, like I used to be a journalist and I used to be a, a radio journalist. So there we are, colleague. Well, we could just talk about that or we could talk about your book, Thieves of State, Why Corruption Threatens National Security, because that's a fascinating topic. Yeah, and it's increasingly relevant. At the time, I was looking mostly overseas, but what I've discovered and what I'm working on now is how accurately patterns that I saw in places like, you know, Afghanistan, Egypt, Nigeria, Honduras, how accurately they apply, frankly, to the United States today. It's pretty um, unsettling. So that's actually the subject of this article that I saw on at The Atlantic. And so um, I'd love to just pivot and have a conversation about that. So the headline, which I recognize that you probably didn't write, but the headline is so that people can find it. Hunter Biden's perfectly legal, socially acceptable corruption. And what we really focus on is how how accepted corruption is at the very highest levels uh, in terms of social influence. And so I'd just love to walk through this with you. How did we get to the place where it's completely socially acceptable um, for folks to operate in a way that we would all look at and say, well, it might not be illegal, but it's certainly not okay? That's a really great question and one I've spent about the last two years trying to figure out. How did we get from a place, I mean, for example, I used to work for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who is probably now, Admiral Mike Mullen, retired, probably the only senior military official that I know of who did not then go and work on the board or as a consultant for a defense company, right? But if you look back to World War II, and I think one of the top World War II generals, one of the four stars, actually testified in Congress in the 1950s saying, it would be dishonorable for me to, after my military career, then go to work for a defense contractor. So there's a very big difference between the sort of public integrity standards of the, I would say, three decades after World War II and now. And what I would submit is that those standards were kind of deliberately dismantled. And you can see it in the cultural sphere where the sort of adulation of money became a thing, almost deliberately promoted in the cultural sphere. And then you had, and this is something else I look at in this forthcoming book, a campaign to reduce the official definition of corruption to something so narrow and technical that, frankly, you'd have to be jailable for stupidity, (laughs) you know, to actually commit it. And that was indeed a campaign. And you can look at the Supreme Court cases and who, you know, wrote those briefs on behalf of the plaintiffs and things like that to see who was involved in this campaign. So one of the things that, uh, and again, let me just remind our listeners, I'm talking to uh, Sarah Chase. We are talking about a piece that is posted 
at The Atlantic. It's entitled Hunter Biden's Perfectly Legal, Socially Acceptable Corruption. It really is a wonderful um, historical look into how this became a business model. I will tell you, this actually helped me answer the internal question that I ask pretty frequently, which is how did that person in public service who I know does not get paid that much, how when they left office did they have so much money? Like how did they amass all that wealth? Right. Well, there's, there, right. there is this influence peddling. I don't know what else to call it. I think that's probably good language for it. And it happens on both sides of the aisle. So I think, you know, let's be really clear here. Uh, this is happening across the board. That's very much my point. Um, and often as I've looked, so one of the things, um, one of the ways I look at this stuff is by network analysis, meaning you start looking at who did people go to school with and who are they working with and who are they on whose boards of directors and things like that. And you scratch almost any current, let's say former top ranking public official and you will find them on boards of directors or having on their board of director people from across the aisle, or you'll see them in business deals with people across the aisle. And so part of what I was trying to do with that article is to say, number one, I'm not saying these two acts are identical, identical or equivalent, nor am I saying that precisely what President Trump is accusing former Vice President Biden of is accurate. But to go from there to say that the Bidens are guilty of, quote, no wrongdoing, or to say we did nothing wrong, is messed up. You know, yes, it is wrong, in my view, for the son of a vice president who is the point man on a country, and in fact, leading an anti-corruption fight in that country for the son of that vice president to get on the board of an energy company run by a member of the kleptocratic network of the, you know, of the government that just got overturned when he has no experience in the country and no experience with energy. Obviously, as you just put it, that's influence peddling and that's wrong. So we have to start making, I, I think there are two really important points here. One is we need to start making distinctions between what's right and wrong and what's legal and illegal. And frankly, we need to start getting those two a little bit closer together. But secondly, and I think most importantly in our times, we are all pointing the finger across the aisle. You know, those guys are corrupt. And then we all of us, I think, find ways of excusing the corruption on our side of the aisle because it's not as bad as, or what about so-and-so, or, well, all businessmen do this. Or we come up with, with all sorts of excuses. And it sounds basic, but it's like, clean your own house first. So point at the people, hold your own to accountable, and that's your own political party, your own gender, your own sexual orientation, your own race, your own, you know, let's hold ourselves and our families up to decent ethical standards. Oh, such a good, uh, such a good strong point. All right, Sarah and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. We have to take a very brief break. Uh, Sarah Chase is the author of... Thieves of State, Why Corruption Threatens National Security. That book focuses mostly internationally, but she's working on a similar book about corruption here in the United States. And so we are having a conversation about an article that actually lays out the template of influence peddling 
here in the U.S. and how it became a business model. So more on that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Sarah Chase, she's the author of Thieves of State, Why Corruption Threatens uh, Global Security. And she is seeing and discovering and then sharing with us uh, how that is actually happening here in the United States as well. And so, Sarah, again, thank you for being with us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much for having me. You describe um, this, what, uh, this is your language, template of influence peddling. Um, talk, talk about that. Talk, walk us through a template of influence peddling. Like, I, maybe I wanted to become an influence peddler. How would I do it? So what I find really interesting is you, you take someone who holds high public office. Uh, in particular, in this case, I'm looking at international affairs. So it would be in the State Department or Defense Department or sometimes the National Security Council. Um, and then after you're out, very often what you might do is become a consultant. So you open a consulting firm whereby you advise companies, let's say, that are investing in the countries where you have built relationships with heads of state. Very often, the countries that would be invested in are developing countries that, frankly, are run by pretty corrupt governments. So the way you get investments is through dealing with these corrupt networks in a place like Ukraine or a place or, you know, Nigeria or um, Latin American countries or whatever. The reason that the returns are high in, uh, in a lot of investments in those countries is because foreign investors are given unfair advantage so long as they kick something back somehow to members of the kleptocratic government, the corrupt government of that country. So you advise companies on how to do that. Meanwhile, you also open a hedge fund where you invest in, you know, uh, enterprises that you basically have insider information on because of your work in the consulting company, right? right. And so it's a compl- it's a very sewn up deal. And the main, um, I want to say, victims of that are the populations of those countries. And that's very distressing to me when I think about people who've been working on the foreign policy of the United States of America. I mean, it is of value both to the world, to the human species, and to the United States of America that the populations of um, this type of country that they have more of the benefit of their own natural resources, for example, or of the common wheel, if you will, of their own country, and that they live in more democratic and, and um, empowering political environments. And so you almost have these former government U.S. government officials who are, through their investments, preventing the very types of development that they claim to be supporting when they were working in the U.S. government. Okay, I'm going to use a very, um, not very precise term here, but that's just icky. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's both icky and counterproductive. And that's what I discovered when I was working on Thieves of State, is that, in fact, when we were claiming to be doing things because of the positive security and national security benefits to the United States. In fact, our very policies were counterproductive. So let me take the Honduran example. 
Um, we all hear about a lot of the um, exodus, frankly, from Central American countries being due to some sort of, you know, vague violence, right? Kind of uncontrolled violence. And people are fleeing violence or, quote, lack of economic opportunity. And often you will see the United States government will be allied and providing significant support to the governments of those countries for their help in stopping, you know, the exodus of people. But in fact, it's the corrupt and exploitative practices of those very governments that is driving people or that are driving people out of the countries. So the more we reinforce that type of government, supposedly for our own security, in fact, the more damaging it is to our security. So this really is a case for me where good ethics is also good policy. And I have not seen uh, uh, um, an American government pull this off very well. I'm, Always, I'm just sorry, go ahead. No, well, so I have a word I want to ask you about, and then, um, and then I want to reflect back on what you just said. My, my, the word I want to ask about is, or phrase, is crony capitalism. When I see that, yeah. when I see that language, am I in the same ballpark of this conversation? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And the reason that I don't use that word is what I'm discovering is that these networks are fully integrated, meaning if you take the network and you have some of the members happen to be in government at a given time, some of the members of the same network happen to be in the private sector at a given time, and some of the members in most of the countries, in all of the countries I've looked at, and I would presume in the United States as well, are dabbling at least in the criminal sector. And so these three sectors that Americans like to hold very separate in their minds are actually woven together within a single network. And, and so the reason I don't tend to use the word crony capitalism is it implies that it's only the private sector. But what I'm trying to say is these, you know, or another word that you've heard often is the revolving door, mm. right? The reason I don't use that is it implies it's a single person who happens to be pushing this revolving door instead of seeing it as a network that is strategically deploying its members for a while to the public sector, then back into the private sector, then back into the public sector so that the interests being served are the interests of the network and not of the public, not of the citizens. And that brings us right back to your earlier question or your earlier point about it being both sides of the aisle. Um, in fact, in some countries, I've heard people say, you know, the political party thing is just meant to divide us up. But when you look at the top of the system, they're all sitting around the same table and mm -hmm. basically sharing out the spoils. Mm -hmm. And I'm distressed to see the degree to which this is the case, even in the United States, where we see ourselves as being very polarized. But at the top of the ladder, there are a lot of business deals going on among, you know, current and former, as I say. And and the the private sector, I mean, the point is that the private sector is largely where the revenue streams are, but not entirely. So if you look at the dis defense sector people who have been in the Pentagon or in the Defense Department in uniform or, or in this, on the civilian leadership side, then go to Lockheed or Raytheon or whatever, 
And there are just massive, massive paddings in the defense budget. So you're essentially, um, I want to say, transferring public money out to the network via the Raytheons and Lockheeds of, of the world. Um, and the network, its members will work for a time on the private sector side of that line and for a time on the public sector side so that the laws can be bent to serve the network. And I think a, a current example of this, which is not an international one, is the FAA and Boeing. Mm -hmm. I would That's be really example. interested to hear who were the Boeing lobbyists who got that provision put in the law that we're just reading about today or hearing about today that allowed Boeing essentially to oversee its own safety provisions. Who were they? I would put money that at least some of them were former FAA employees. Oh, sure. I feel like a big pharma is a big conversation we could have as well. All right, Sarah, Absolutely. you and I... We have to leave it right there today. Um, I am. This is a topic that fascinates me. We will absolutely have you back as you continue to till this soil. Um, you guys can check out what she's doing at thievesofstate.com. Sarah Chase, thank you so much for being with us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. Just fantastic. All right, we'll be right back. All right, I feel like that was a feast. Um, I wanted to ask her, all right, so then after they've amassed all of this uh, money and influence and they want to peddle it in the nonprofit sector, uh, where does that thread, where do those threads lead? Because we often hear about the billionaire class pumping money into uh, into certain nonprofit efforts. So anyway, I just, I feel like that's a thread we're going to have to pull again with Sarah Chase. Uh, thank you so much for listening, taking us with you on the first hour. There's a whole nother hour up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.